I want to say hi to everybody who's joining us. I'm John Ortberg from Menlo Church, and I'm extremely grateful for a really uh, important conversation in this moment about what does it mean to follow Jesus in our country at this time. And uh, I'm joined by Dr. Ephraim Smith. Uh, he is uh, uh, a voice to our world and our church. He's a national and international speaker. Uh, he's an author a number of times over. Uh, he's an organizational leader. He's led uh, 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 World Impact. Uh, are you still with World Impact, Ephraim? No, I, uh, I serve as co-senior pastor at Bayside Church Midtown. And that is the uh, urban and multi-ethnic expression of the Bayside family of churches here in the Sacramento area, but still very connected to, uh, to World Impact. And still I knew that partner. you were at Bayside, but I didn't know uh, with your capacity for juggling multiple plates if that was also still on the docket. So, uh, so no, I, um, I, I very much was honored in having the opportunity to serve with World Impact for a number of years, and, but I just missed pastoring. So yeah. I, uh, I missed the local church. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm uh, glad to be back in that role to, uh, to pastor a congregation. Well, I'm, uh, a lot of you who will be watching this will know about Ephraim, know his ministry and his heart, and he is a pastor. And uh, that's a big part of why we wanted to have this conversation. Uh, and Ephraim, I, I think I'd like to start uh, just by asking, as you have watched the events that have unfolded in our nation, uh, particularly over these last weeks, and particularly uh, since that video of the choking death of George Floyd, and then the um, emotion and the pain that has emerged. Uh, I would love to start by just asking if you'd be willing to tell us what have you been thinking? What has been on your mind? What's been on your heart? What have you been experiencing? Well, one, uh, the tragic video of George Floyd on 38th and Chicago in South Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, saying that he couldn't breathe, that um, his body was hurting, crying out for his mother. Uh, it, it was painful to watch, but it was deeply personal, not because I was watching another African-American unarmed crying for his life, but it took place on a block where I grew up. Uh -huh. I'm originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, born and raised there, uh, South Minneapolis uh, specifically. And uh, my grandmother's house was, is right around the corner uh, or was, my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago, but um, I spent a lot of time um, back and forth between my parents' house in South Minneapolis, that's about five, six blocks or so away from 38th in Chicago, and my grandmother's house that was right around the corner. So I mean, on that corner where George Floyd was crying out, I learned to ride my bike, I rode a big wheel, I traded comic books with my friends. That Cup Foods um, used to be called O'Toole's Drugstore, and I can't tell you how many Hostess apple pies and Twinkies and ICs I had from there and comic books I bought from there. So it was deeply, deeply personal for me to watch it happen there. Um, and, and so no doubt I'm grieved uh, and, and weary uh, by this. And, and, and when it, it was such a succession. Yeah. I mean, well, one, in totality, I think this is like the 26th or 27th video that has gone viral, that has gone national and global. Uh, also, though, just in recent weeks, I mean, you had the video of Ahmad Arbery uh, 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 being shot and killed while jogging. Uh, you had uh, the story of Breonna Taylor, yes. uh, who died while she was asleep as officers broke into the, they, they came into the wrong house. Uh, uh, and, then, um, the, and then the video, um, which isn't uh, violent physically, but the video of the woman in Central Park in New York threatening and actually um, living out the threat to call the police on an African-American man and lie and say that he was assaulting her when he was only asking her to put her dog on a leash while he was bird watching 
in a part of Central Park that it's required that your dog is on a leash. It, and it was so, so striking that she didn't say, I'm going to call the police and tell them that a man is threatening my life. What she said to him was, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening me. Yeah. And, and there is um, a narrative that we can't explore here. We don't have to of what, where does that come from? Where does that come from of, of there's something about telling a law enforcement dispatcher that the person is black that the person is African-American yes. and how that raises a different response than not saying that it's yes. a black person. Yes. So, so, so grieving and weary is, is part of it, but I'm, I'm trying to hold on to hope and having these conversations with a brother like you, who's a pastor who wants to bring this kind of conversation before your congregation, that, that gives me great hope. Well, uh, Hope is something that all of us need. It can look real different from different perspectives. Yes. And uh, uh, it is possible for somebody who lives in a world uh, like the one where I live, where I don't have to wake up every day and think about my race. I, I, I have the luxury, I have the privilege of just often thinking uh, simply of my life as though I don't have a particular racial or ethnic identity uh, uh, that my life is somehow just normal. And so hope to me uh, can easily become something that is just hope for my own little life and hope for things to well to go well for me. And I think for a lot of folks who live uh, in uh, white identity in the white world, that word hope can mean something very different. Talk a little bit about that word hope and what does it mean? Well, for African-Americans, because of the history and the present uh, conditions of the United States of America that we need to continue to work through, hope is connected with justice. Yes. So uh, hope for uh, many of my white brothers and sisters can be, uh, it can be relational. It can be the fulfillment of dreams. It can just mean determination and not giving up. Mm. But for African-Americans, uh, hope is connected to um, a, 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 a believing, a striving, a faith that systems and structures and institutions that weren't initially built for your flourishing and thriving can um, become places where you can achieve and thrive and flourish uh, and have the same access, the same opportunities uh, as, as anyone else. Um, you know, uh, the old soul singer, the godfather of soul, James Brown, once had a mantra in a song and said, I don't want nobody to give me nothing. Just open up the door and I'll get it myself. And, and that was, and that's the hope. The hope is that, um, the access, the opportunity uh, to, to show, and, and it shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't be in a world where uh, black human beings have to prove their full humanity yes. to the rest of the world. Yes. But that has been the narrative that, that I hope I have the opportunity to prove that I'm just as human, that I'm just as smart, that I'm just as strong, that I'm just as capable, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm just as human. So. Let's talk about that narrative a little bit. I think a lot of times for a lot of white people, uh, when the word racism comes up, uh, it will conjure up, you know, Klansmen, uh, neo-Nazis, and a lot of people can say, well, that's not me. I don't think that way. I don't do those things. And therefore, um, racism is not my problem. And the idea that there's a narrative that goes back a long ways um, that just infiltrates people's minds, people's hearts, people's perceptions, the way that people respond when they see somebody. You look at that corner where that video is taken and that's home. That's just, that's, that's, uh, other people will look at that video and we're all shocked and horrified by it, but uh, not always see the same thing. 
So talk a little bit about what does it mean that there is a narrative where somebody would have to say, because of the color of their skin when they're born, I have to prove my full humanity. Yes. Well, so um, I want to give some United States roots and then uh, try to briefly tie that to some biblical roots. Uh, and so uh, in the United States of America, uh, the beginnings for many African-Americans, not all, was, was, was to be a slave. Yeah. And then for the rest of those that were not enslaved was to not be fully American, to not fully participate in all that the constitution and bylaws of the nation uh, uh, afforded those that it was initially intended for. You know, I, I just yesterday, somebody responded to something I said, and they said, well, race is not mentioned in the Constitution. So how can you say the Constitution was not for all people? Well, mm -hmm. the, the system of slavery alongside the development of the Constitution that existed before the Constitution was finalized uh, already had the race structure uh, solidified in the fabric of the development of the United States. Yes. Um, and so uh, the, the race structure, it's, it's a socialized structure. It's not biblical, uh, it's man-made. It, it doesn't have a, a lot of biological, if any, foundation to it. It basically just says, based on the color of your skin, your physical features, we decide who's fully human, uh, who's smart, who's dumb, who's fast, who's slow, uh, who, uh, who should be feared and who should be revered, mm. who, who can clap on beat and who shouldn't bother. <laughs> we, we decide these things. Well, that last one might have a little evidence to it, but the rest, <laughs> no. And so, and in that race structure, it, it was developed in the belief that Europeans or eventually uh, whites were more enlightened, yeah. were, were, um, were more civilized, were, were more human. I mean, there were questions at the beginning of the United States of if black people had a soul to be saved. And if they did, that salvation was to be lived out as a slave or subordinate to white people um, and I don't know how they worked out the theology of heaven, that once we got to heaven, were we all equal and it was just down here? But, Fascinating. Yeah. But down here. But down here, yeah. uh, black people were beneath, were underneath white people. Now, uh, back to when you said, well, there might be white people today that say, well, I don't think my family owns slaves. Or if they did, I don't own slaves. Mm -hmm. so, so why do I need to take a responsibility around that in any way? Yeah. Why, why should that call me to repentance? Uh, I, I had a conversation with a white brother who said to me, hey, I think I, I, think I read somewhere that only 15% of white people owned slaves. And I said, well, I, I haven't read that data. Maybe that's true. But more than 15% of white people benefited from slavery. Yeah. It gave white people a tremendous head start that for a number of years, black people couldn't build an economy for themselves. They couldn't build businesses for themselves. They couldn't uh, vote. They, 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 they couldn't um, build stable families legally. They couldn't be educated. So that gives white brothers and sisters a significant head start and as best I know, when slavery ended, there wasn't a universal uh, therapy uh, service that was offered. There wasn't a, a national uh, reparations program that included uh, how you build a family, how you build a church. These former slaves, by the grace of God, I mean, I think it's a miracle of God that, that these stories of of men and women going from slavery to planting churches and building businesses yes. and owning land. And in some cases, having that taken away from them, having those neighborhoods burned, having those churches bombed. And then once again, building schools, building clinics, rebuilding churches, rebuilding communities, just um, 
for the most part, against all odds, many Black people, if not the majority of them, still keep coming back to America with a loving, patient, grace-filled, reconciling posture of wanting to fully participate in uh, what the Constitution offers its citizens. And so it, to specifically go to law enforcement, yeah. I, I want to say that on one hand, we need to live out the truth that the majority of, of police officers are striving to do the right thing, uh, the, the majority of them. And at the same time, can we hold the truth that the majority of, of police officers want to do the right thing and hold the truth that law enforcement was originally created in this country to protect and serve white people mm. and to keep black mm. people on plantations. Mm. Then it moved from protecting and serving white people to keeping black people out of white communities after dark, mm. to protect white people from black people. This goes back to one of the first Hollywood blockbuster movies, I believe of the 1920s called Birth of a Nation. Mm -hmm. And in this silent film, this black and white film, whites are presented as pure, innocent, and Christian. And black people are presented as rapists and animals and less than human. And the film actually presents the Ku Klux Klan and law enforcement working in tandem to protect pure, Christian, mm -hmm. innocent white people from these scary black people that are among us that are no longer slaves, but we need to be protected from them. And then it moves to, well, there's a few good ones. My maid is a good black person. Mm -hmm. My chauffeur, my butler, you know, um, the guy that plows my, my yard, he, he seems to be a good sensible Negro. Mm -hmm. And so though we've passed laws, I don't know if we fully exercised the spiritual forces that undergirded those systems and institutions that weren't meant for the flourishing of black people in the first place. And can we hold those tensions together? Yes. That the majority of, can we hold in tension that the majority of, 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 of law enforcement officers, the majority of white people, white Christians in particular, want to do good, want to do right, and yet we're still in the midst of systems and structures and institutions that when they were first developed, they, they weren't built for, for black and brown people's flourishing. I think of uh, uh, our youngest child, our son is now 31. Uh, I never had a conversation with him about if you get stopped by the police, here's what you should do, or here's what you should not do. Yes. Um, that's a conversation that uh, uh, I simply never had to have. But I think stories that uh, are being heard more right now are for our African-American brothers and sisters, when there is a young black man growing up, that conversation has to be held no matter what. Yeah, in my experience, when, when I was young and I would say to my white friends, when we would, when we would have a conversation about the talk from your parents, mm -hmm. for many white teenagers, that meant the sex talk, <laughs> the birds and the bees. Yes. For, yeah. for African-Americans, the talk is a book and it says chapter one, sex, chapter two, what to do when you're with police. Chapter three, what to do when you're around white people in the South. I mean, the talk for me, my wow. dad's from uh, Monroe, Louisiana. Mm. And when uh, my mom and dad and uh, my younger brother and I, we would pack up the, the 1977 Oldsmobile and, uh, and we would drive from Minneapolis uh, to Monroe, Louisiana. And mm. on the way, my mom and dad would remind my brother and I of how we had to behave differently in the deep South. Wow. They would say, don't look white people in the eye. Say, yes, sir. Say, yes, ma'am. Even if they tell you, you can call them by their first name. Do not do it. And do not look a white woman directly in the eye. Wow. I mean, that, dude, don't, 
don't don't accidentally say something uh, because my parents would have remembered Emmett Till's death of smiling at a white woman, uh, supposedly whistling at a white woman and and lost his life. And so the talk for African-Americans is a book with many chapters. Mm. Mm. So painful. Um, so uh, uh, let's 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 get to Jesus now. And from you yes. and I are both ministers of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, uh, I think part of uh, what wants to be said in this day needs to be said in this day is the connection between the pursuit of racial justice, the recognition of the sin of racism, and discipleship to Jesus. So just talk for a while about Jesus. What is Jesus thinking? What is Jesus feeling? What do we have to learn from him right now? Yeah. So as believers, we don't need to feel paralyzed in acknowledging that there are systems and structures, institutions, ideologies that don't work for everyone equally, that weren't built for everyone in mind. Uh, that is not an original phenomena of the United States of America. I, I, you know, I shouldn't have to say this, but you know, I, I, I always say, you know, I am not anti-American. I'm not. I'm glad I live in the United States of America. I like catfish, collard greens, macaroni and cheese, and cornbread. I mean, I, that's kind of Southern American. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm glad I, I get one vote. I got, I'm glad that we we represent churches that can worship without fear of being arrested. Um, you can take an idea and turn it into a business. I mean, that that's. America, that's great. And at the same time, there are systems and institutions and structures. Sin is not just housed in the heart. Mm. Sin is housed in systems and in institutions, in structures, in philosophies and ideologies. And we don't need to feel guilt-ridden by that. We need to find purpose and mission knowing that reality. And so in the Bible, we get to see what God does in systems and institutions that are broken, that are upside down. Yeah. One, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is eternity. When we, when we fully enter into the kingdom of God, there will be no brokenness. There'll be no racism, no sexism. There, there'll be no disease. There'll be no poverty. Uh, so, so we look towards, we press towards the kingdom. And we are called to be a sneak preview of mm. that kingdom mm. in systems that are broken Love and that. not built for everyone right now. If yeah. you're a doctor, if you're a CEO of a company, if you're a vice president, if you're a teacher, if you're a social worker, if you're an actor, you're a missionary where you, where you are. You're, you're sent there to be a representative of the right side up kingdom in an upside down system in some meaningful way. Don't be guilt ridden with shame. Uh, let the Holy Spirit empower you, awaken you to mm. your true kingdom purpose. So back to the Bible. Um, early on in Genesis, after we see sin in individuals, we see sinful individuals start to build sinful systems like the Tower of Babel mm. in Genesis chapter 11. Then later, let's fast forward to Exodus. We find the Hebrew people under systems and structures, a government that wasn't built for their flourishing and thriving, that doesn't represent their being image bearers of God. And they cry out from slavery. And we learn in Exodus that God hears the cries of those that are held captive in sinful systems and structures and governments not built for them. And he liberates them. And we need to be reminded as believers that, that many theologians uh, uh, believe that, that the events that liberate Hebrews out of the slavery of Egypt and Moses as the one used to liberate them points to Christ, yeah. points to the ultimate liberator from sin, the ultimate one who liberates spiritually and socially. So fast forward to the New Testament. It's interesting that the incarnation 
doesn't take place from the top, mm -hmm. from power, mm -hmm. from earthly privilege. God comes into our world in the human package of the oppressed, born in poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, we mm -hmm. have to, to even accept Jesus, we have to get our head around that a divine event took place with a teenage unwed mother. Mm -hmm. And we have to claim that as divine. That's our story. As supernatural. Mm -hmm. a, 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 a teenage girl facing the stigma of the outside world. I mean, I don't know, try to sell your community on, I'm, I'm a teenager, I'm pregnant, I'm not married, God did it. So he's, and he's born in a manger in poverty. As soon as Jesus is born, he, his family, his earthly family has to flee across the border to Egypt because terrorism is committed against all the male babies that look like him. Uh, Jesus takes on just about every possible thing a marginalized, oppressed person could take yeah. on. Yeah. Like, before Rodney King, it was Jesus being beaten by hit the, that version of law enforcement, yeah. beaten publicly, incarcerated, and then crucified. I mean, it took an unjust, corrupt system to crucify Jesus. And it took a religious community that had no clue to push it, hmm. to propel it. So... We learn from the Gospels that though God comes in the form of the oppressed and the marginalized, the victimized, and he finds solidarity with those that the systems weren't designed for, the yeah. blind, the paralyzed, those with demons in cemeteries, cutting themselves with stones, the diseased woman, the Samaritan, mm -hmm. the, 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 the woman that's on death row, for committing adultery while the man somehow is not facing the same sentence. So this whole notion of disparities in sentencing in the mm -hmm. justice system, you can read that in the Bible. So I don't know, American Christians shouldn't be in denial about systems that don't work for people when the scripture is full of stories. Yes. Jesus, the savior engages people that the systems and the institutions and the structures don't work for. And then he dies for both the oppressed and the oppressor. Mm, yeah. Jesus dies for the spiritual and social conversion of the centurion and the Samaritan. But I think part of what that speaks to is uh, we all read the same Bible, but we all come to it from a different perspective and look at it from a different lens and what will jump out to one person, because that's my story, is not even seen by somebody else. Yeah, and, and I think you're so right. And I think that's why to truly more and more become Christian, yes, it's yeah. not just bringing my story to the scripture. Yeah. It's allowing the scripture to push me to solidarity to someone else's story. Mm -hmm. That I allow, I allow the Holy Spirit to push me towards your story, mm. Pastor John, and you allow the Holy Spirit to, to push you towards my story. When I, when I pastored a multi-ethnic church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, I think that's the first time we met. You were at Willow Creek in Chicago mm. and I was in Minneapolis. I remember. And um, our church, when we first started, we used to have these multi-ethnic meals where I would invite people to bring a dish something to eat that represented their ethnicity and their upbringing. Mm. And we would have the enchiladas next to the fried rice, next to the collard greens. It was such a reconciling event. We had sweet potato pie next to pumpkin pie. Now we did outlaw Ludafisk. <laughs> even though we were good Minnesotans, I was just like, in the name of Jesus, I don't even know if people watching and listening to us even know what Ludafisk is. I know what Ludafisk is and even Jesus does not like Ludafisk. And we also didn't bring chitlins, you know, which, which that's from my mom and dad's culture and we, we, you know, their background. And so you don't want Ludafisk and, and uh, chitlins in the same room. The smells would just 
be combustible. But, uh, and I would say to, the, to, to our community, the same way that we're digesting one uh, another's foods, yeah. we need to digest one another's stories, one yes. another's pain, one another's dreams. Can we, without the first reaction being judgment, mm. just absorb and embrace? Because that's what Jesus did. He absorbed. Yeah. He took in. He took upon himself. And what does that mean for us to, um, to practice uh, solidarity with one another? I, I uh, uh, got an email uh, this week. One of uh, a lot of emails was from a couple at our church where uh, one spouse is uh, African-American, the other spouse is uh, Latino. And uh, uh, part of what they were pouring out is uh, two words in particular, uh, tired, really, really tired, uh, and hopeless. And, uh, and wanted to know for our church, what will we do? What will we say? Are we in this for the long haul? There's a lot of emotions that are going to go on right now, but emotions tend to come and go. National attention comes and goes. And uh, this is something that for everybody who's watching, that's part of our church, we have to do. And this is kind of my role to say as a pastor, uh, whatever the background, uh, we all have to listen. We all have to open up. Ephraim, can you talk a bit to that sense of um, fatigue and exhaustion uh, that is out there. Because I think we're hearing expressed a lot, the anger, the rage, which is always there, but may not often be expressed or be able to be expressed because uh, too many people who have power are just not paying attention. Yeah. And then that sense of exhaustion that comes from, one more time, one more time, one more time. We're going to have this conversation one more time. Say a little bit about that because that's a comment that uh, I think a lot of us need to listen to right now. Yeah, um, there's an author um, named Edward Gilbreth. He, he wrote a book a few years ago called Reconciliation Blues hmm. that I, I identify with in moments like this. One of the biblical stories I've been using to describe that weariness is um, John chapter five, the story of the, uh, the unnamed invalid, the, the one who's been paralyzed for 38 years and he's at the pool in Bethesda. And uh, you know, the, the story goes that, you know, an angel comes from heaven and stirs the waters. And while the waters are stirring, you know, uh, those that have, that, that have various uh, disabilities, uh, various issues, they go to, these, to this water for healing and wholeness and transformation. And here's this paralyzed man sitting on a mat or lying on a mat, and he's been there for 38 years. Hmm. And every time the water stirs, he, you know, he can't move. So he's hoping that someone uh, mobile, someone with, with greater access, someone that, the system has worked for them uh -huh. would just take him to the waters. He's not asking for lifelong dependency. He's not, he's not saying uh, every day I need you to show up and take me. He just, he just needs someone with more privilege, more power, more mobility to, to, to help him get to the water so that the system can work for him too. And it says he's been waiting for 38 years before Jesus comes to him. And so sometimes I, I feel somewhat emotionally, mentally drained and paralyzed um, because I became a Christian. I grew up in the church, but I, I really uh, said yes to Jesus when I was in high school. And um, I grew up in an African-American church, uh, but also uh, I was in a youth group in a predominantly white Methodist church that when the neighborhood changed, they refused to leave. Mm. The pastor at the time, Phil Heinerman, I think he lost like six, 700 white people that left the church because they wanted to move to the suburbs. And he said, no, God's called us here. And then when 
um, youth like me started coming to the church, they said, we should have the neighborhood youth meet in a community center down the street, but not here in the church with our kids. And he refused to do that. And so the, they started losing people. But as the church started to grow again, it was because Dr. Heinerman uh, and the, his associate pastor, Art Erickson, they brought preachers to the church like Madeline Mims and John Perkins and Tony Evans and E.V. Hill. So mm -hmm. as a 16, 17-year-old, I was listening to the sermons. I was meeting. I was, I, I was like in proximity to John Perkins and Tom Skinner and E.V. Hill and Tony Evans and Madeline Mims, um, uh, other speakers that, that weren't African-American that spoke about um, the empowerment of the vulnerable, like Joni Erickson Tata. Mm -hmm. And so my call to ministry was based on their teaching and preaching. So that was 30 years ago, though. Wow. And I feel like 30 years later, I'm preaching the same sermons they were. Yeah. I'm writing the same kind of books they wrote. I'm at conferences, you know, now online, saying the same. And I go, I don't think John Perkins and Tom Skinner and Tony Evans and E.V. Hill and Madeline Mims, I wouldn't describe them as like these hard left wing, uh, they've, they've forgotten the, the essentials of the gospel, angry black people. I mean, these were like olive branch, patient, loving, grace-filled. Some of them would call themselves evangelical. Mm -hmm. And so there is a part of me, though I'm trying to hold on to hope, there's a part of me that is saying, what, what will it take to get a greater segment of evangelicalism? A, a greater segment of my white brothers and sisters to believe that social justice is not some liberal outside the gospel, outside the Bible idea. It, it, can we talk about justice and reconciliation and there finally be an acceptance that that is the gospel? The gospel is both spiritual and in the social transformation, a sneak preview of the kingdom of God being at hand. Um, I was at uh, Wheaton College in the late 70s and uh, Evie Hill came for a week of special services. And uh, uh, it electrified the campus. I, I will remember till I die, he did a sermon called, When Was God at His Best? Mm. and uh, walked through all these amazing things that God did, but then it was when God reached down and saved a little guy like me on this day. Uh, it was unbelievable, and uh, everybody's heart was pierced. And if I had to guess then, and that's been now more than 40 years ago, if I had to look ahead in 40 years, uh, I would have guessed that we'd be so much farther than we are. And um, I am, uh, for better and for worse, a child of the evangelical church. Uh, my dad grew up in the Covenant Church, which you know all about. And uh, I went to Fuller Seminary, graduated from there. We, so we have lots of connects uh, in the church world. Um, uh, in many ways, uh, of all the different demographic slices in the United States, uh, African-Americans would be the group of folks most likely to embrace similar spiritual and theological beliefs that the kind of historically evangelical church does. Yes, yes. A very Jesus-centered, Bible-oriented, uh, deep belief in a personal interactive God. And yet, uh, you know, you can look at uh, the research from Barna or sociologists at University of Connecticut, Brad Wright, or a number of other folks. Uh, it is often actually white evangelicals uh, who are farthest away from 
understanding, affirming the urgency of problems like racial injustice in our day. They're actually uh, more likely to say that racism was really a problem in the past, not just than African-Americans, but even than secularists. And you may or may not have a comment on this because you, you live in a world where you will connect with the white evangelical church as well, but it's so painful and perplexing and I don't understand uh, why there is that gap. And again, that's probably an issue that I need to speak to Ephraim more than you do, but if you do have any uh, observations into it, it, it's something where God's got to move. Yeah. And we, we've seen um, moments yeah. like the Azusa revivals. Yeah. Yes. Um, like the civil rights movement. We, we have, we have seen uh, moments in our nation uh, from the church, from prayer, from hymns, from nonviolent resistance, uh, a combination of revival and resistance. Uh, I, I've seen evidences of what reconciliation can look like, what what biblical justice uh, can look like. I'm 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 not naive. I'm I'm not I'm not believing that before Christ returns, there's this experience of this utopian world where there's going to be no racism, no sexism, no violence, no hatred, no unforgiveness, no, no adultery, no jealousy, no envy. I, I know that that's not the case. I know that, that uh, there are going to be many bumps in the road between now and when Jesus returns and makes everything right forever. But I do believe there is more that the church can do as an embassy and an outpost mm. of the kingdom of God to unleash truth, love, compassion, justice, humility, uh, uh, a preview of beloved community. And um, I, I, I'm grateful that um, your, your heart is open to this kind of conversation, that you're listening to those, um, those African-American, Latino, Latina, and other uh, members in your congregation, uh, because I, I know your heart and, and I know that, um, you, you, you sensed a deep call to Menlo Park. And yet I know as best you can in the demographic that you have, you want, um, a congregation that reflects its surrounding community, which is becoming more and more diverse and as best you can go, how, how do we function as a sneak preview of heaven? Yeah. How do we use our resources and the talents? I mean, when you have a congregation such as yours that has scholars and, and um, tech executives, uh, that, that has uh, teachers, uh, so, I mean, you have such a great combination of people that it's a great opportunity to revisit the time, treasure, and talent that makes up Menlo Park and reimagine and rediscover how that can be dispatched uh, so that the kingdom of God is advanced and people can experience beloved community where there's brokenness. Yeah, uh, we're a great congregation. Um, we are not as smart as we think we are. Uh, <laughs> just starting with me, I, I, I should put that just first person singular. Um, when I think about uh, the diversity in the Bay Area, you know, from down to Gilroy up to Napa. And then I think of uh, uh, the vision of the beloved community in Revelation, people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation uh, uh, to, to continue to move, to look like that, reflect like that, want that, aspire to that, dream about that. That is the kingdom. And I do think, uh, Often in the evangelical church, one of the problems has been that the gospel for too long got expressed in terms of, as if it were, the announcements of the minimal entrance requirement to get an individual into heaven when they die. And then all of discipleship really becomes extra credit. And as you were saying, the notion of addressing systems, systemic evil, and social structures is thought to somehow be an add-on or distraction or uh, 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 even false, 
rather than understanding that the gospel is um, the availability of life in the kingdom of God now through Jesus up there coming down here. And uh, that must include the transformation of the individual as a free gift of grace in a way that death cannot stop. And if the kingdom is going to come, it's got to address systems and structures and neighborhoods and families and schools and corporations. There's no other way to understand your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do you view the gospel and our understanding of the gospel speaking into racial sin and the atonement, the writing of racial injustice? Um, you know, well, man, you, you had me really, uh, so much stuff is stirring in me, you know, when you were, when you were saying that. But, uh, uh, you know, Another text that I really lean on to get more specific in this is 2 Corinthians 5. Mm. And, and this call between verses 14 and 21 to um, take on the message and the ministry of reconciliation. So um, Jesus followers need to see that racial reconciliation is a ministry. Uh, right now, racial, to, to experience racial reconciliation, it feels so political. It feels, yeah. it feels like, oh, so the only way I can be a part of racial reconciliation is I have to jump political parties or I have to stop watching this cable news station or I have to stop reading this. I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't, I don't know. But that's not what's at the core the, the the reconciliation is a is a ministry it's a it's a calling and you have to take where you are how god has gifted you and wired you and find your place uh on the road to racial reconciliation. Sometimes the ministry of reconciliation and advancing the kingdom is just playing a, a role in closing the racial gaps, the disparities that exist in just one particular area. So I'll give you one example um, is, is I, I talk to a lot of churches that say, well, where do we even begin to get on the road to racial reconciliation of advancing the kingdom in the area of race? Well, I go, here's one. Uh, there's data that's been presented that shows that if urban, uh, black and brown, public school kids between the, the grades of third grade and fifth grade, if they're at grade level in math and reading, they are very likely to go to college. But if they're below grade level between the third and fifth grade in math and reading, they are very likely to be incarcerated. So I believe that at the majority of churches in America, the adults can read at the third grade level. The adults can do math at the third grade level. So if you go to the nearest under-resourced public elementary school and you start a tutoring program or you start a summer academy and you just make sure that kids are at grade level uh, in, 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 in math and reading, uh, you are dismantling the pipeline to prison. You wow. are opening the gateway to college. You are empowering those that um, have historically been the marginalized and the outcast and are behind because uh, outside of spiritual transformation through mm. Jesus, education is a tremendous key mm. that unlocks the door to empowerment. I mean, I would go, if I had an order of empowerment, I would say, Jesus, <laughs> education, oh. wealth creation, you know, yeah. so, so, you know, wealth, so, you know, Jesus, you know, education, wealth creation, that closes gaps. And so getting kids to, to grade level in math and reading by the third grade is going to get, get us down that, that road. And so that is a nonpartisan, yeah. that, you know what I mean? Uh, it should be low-hanging fruit, simple way. At Bayside Church, we, we uh, usually raise $250,000 to put on a summer academy called the Breakaway Academy to do just what I was talking about. Well, with COVID-19, 
uh, we're not able to do the Breakaway Academy summer school on site. So uh, we raised, uh, between all of our Bayside campuses, uh, we partnered with San Francisco 49er player Eric Armstead, whose mom is one of our pastors. Huh. Uh, we, we partnered with him and we raised um, the money to provide 350 elementary school kids in, in uh, an under-resourced community uh, to get them all Chromebooks and pay for internet access for a year if they wow. don't have it. Wow. So that we can that way get them to grade level in math and reading this summer. So I would, so I just mentioned that to try to give, you know, uh, as simple and practical as I can a way that you can participate in something that actually deals with the racial disparities and, and you know, the gaps that exist that can, and that's, that's racial reconciliation. Now, we, we can go from there and get into some of the more complex situations, like what is um, honoring and reforming law enforcement look like? Uh, you, know, what, you know, so we can, we can yeah. get to, what, how do we deal with housing gaps and that kind of thing? But I always tell churches, start with something simple. That's how, that's how I learned to swim. What I'm learning is, for, for some of my white brothers and sisters, if I can be candid, mm -hmm. if you just push them in the deep end of the pool of race, they, they can't swim. They, <laughs> so I go, look, the shallow end is over there. Mm -hmm. Get some kids to grade level in math and reading. And then from that end of the pool, you know, get a floaty, get a, get a life jacket and make your way to the deeper waters of justice, compassion, and mercy. Oh, man. Well, uh, Dr. Smith, I'm so grateful for this time, uh, for your generosity of spirit and heart. God have mercy. God pour out great blessing on you and Bayside and Menlo Church and our nation. And uh, be at work uh, to make his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for this time, Ephraim. Oh, thank you. Hey, and once we get past the season we're in, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, having an opportunity to actually be on site with you all at Menlo. And um, I believe if, if, uh, as we make progress out of this COVID-19 season, I'm actually going to be with um, uh, the, is it ECO? I want to make sure I'm saying the fellowship yep, yep, name. Yeah, right. denomination. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm actually going to yeah. be with the, the ECO uh, gathering of pastors in, uh, I think it's February of next year. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Well, uh, I will look forward to having you at the campus and lots more conversation. Blessings, brother.